Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. looking into each other's eyes <laughs> we're about to post a video of us being reunited at the airport after two years of absence <laughs> i'm pretty sure people were like staring and like what is wrong with these women <laughs> freaks <laughs> it's been forever i we haven't seen each other in person for over two years i hadn't been in an airplane had you no the last time i was in an airplane i was um, returning home from my interview at WSU in January of 2020. <laughs> Which, side note, I didn't tell the story at the time because I didn't want everyone to know I was doing a job interview. I actually got stuck coming back. Oh, no. And so I went Pullman to Seattle, and then I got to Seattle, and they're like, yeah, your flight's been canceled, and we can't get you on another one for three days. <laughs> and so I had job interview clothes. Like, I didn't have... Were you seriously stuck for three for days? For three whole days. And so I sat on the airport Wi-Fi and found a hotel I could afford, took a lift to a SeaTac hotel, and stayed there for three days. Oh, my God. And basically wearing the same pajamas. Because what am I going to do? Wear a blazer in a hotel room? <laughs> <laughs> like, I just had job interview clothes. Oh, no. And, yes, alone in a hotel room. And I didn't – it was over winter break, so I didn't want to really tell anyone where I was because that's like – you know, Jinx not it. the most kosher thing to do. Yeah. And uh, so I was just like by myself watching Netflix in trying to decompress from this interview. Yeah. And I didn't want to pay to take lifts all over the place. And so I was just basically doing like room service, but it was expensive. Oh, that was not a fun time. And that's the last time I flew <laughs> until yesterday. <laughs> when is the last time you flew? You know, I honestly don't even remember. Yesterday was such a long day. I had, you know, the living in a small city, there's not really much that's close. So going to an airport is like a journey. Yeah. So I had a 4am wake up. And then I drove at 430 <laughs> to Gulfport, got on a plane. It was a it was a two layover flight 
went to Houston and then I went to Denver and like, I don't know. We, it was a more than 12 hour day. Like it was like a 16 hour day or something. And I had a mask on the whole time, like my KN95 mask. And then like the last flight from Denver to Lincoln, uh, there was a delay because they didn't close the baggage door completely. So then we had to taxi back and they had to put the bridge back and redo the safety checks and make sure they could close the door. I just picture a plane flying through the air and like roller bags falling just out the dropping bottom. dropping <laughs> into people's like fields and pools and stuff. <laughs> oh God. I was like, we're all rusty at this. We can't even close the door properly. Right? They're like, oh, we have to close the doors before we fly. In the air. <laughs> yes, you must close the door. So do you, this is something that I'm always stumped on in my oboe brain when I fly. Do you think it's worse to put the instrument under the seat in front of you or in the overhead compartment? I probably have to consult an oboe for that. For a bassoon, it's not an option. Like if they see you with the bassoon under the seat, they go, um, excuse me, that's too big. <laughs> put it in the overhead. But like, so bassoons always go in the overhead, like guitars and stuff. So oh, I, okay. I would imagine it's fine. Yeah. Um, I never know which is worse. Like for the adjustments and stuff, like with all the bouncing around and all the vibrations, I'm like, it's... That is the one thing that makes me nervous because you share overhead space with other people. Yeah. And so sometimes you'll see, like, I've never had it happen with my bassoon. And if anyone tried, I would be like, excuse you. <laughs> no. But you will see, like, people are, oh, I bet I can fit mine in here if I and just, just rearrange shove everything. Shove everything around. Shove and, or, like, if the bin doesn't want to close and they're, like, <laughs> just, like, chopping into these overhead yeah. bin doors. I guess that... It, I mean, if I could shrink my bassoon momentar momentarily and put it under the seat, would I? Probably yes. But also, I want to, like, have access to my laptop That's and my the books thing. and stuff. But y'all could fit yours in your backpacks. But I brought two bags, mm -hmm. and I ended up choosing to put the oboe in the compartment. <laughs> oh, you're about I to was get like, judged right now. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I really want my iPad. <laughs> And my snacks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, if this was like the Old Testament and King Solomon was like snacks or oboe, oboe. I'd be like, snacks? <laughs> snacks? I'm hungry. <laughs> Hello? Why would I ever think about oboe? snacks and book and headphones and iPad. Obviously. <laughs> So for y'all, it's simple. No one's ever like going to give you grief about having your oboe with you on the plane. Mm -hmm. But for bassoonists, it's a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, some things that have made my life better as a bassoon flyer, though I will say I enjoy the trips where I am not flying with my oh bassoon. Oh my God. So it's you so significantly more than the fancy free. Yes. It's like, You're just like childless. Yes. I imagine <laughs> it's what it feels like as a parent to like not have to travel with your kid and be like, oh, uh -huh. we have the diaper bag and we have the dance and we have the that. Like, uh -huh. oh, we have to check the car seat and then like yep. carry him the everywhere. Stroller, yep. Put him in my lap. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but so some things, the first one is like not available to everyone. And I'm not saying like, oh, this is an easy solution just do it. But I did get the compact model or sometimes see it called mm-hmm. the gentleman's model cut. And you know what? That thing has saved your life. Remember when I almost killed you with that car trunk yes. door? Marcus Bonacase did save my life when Galee almost shut the hatch. <laughs> not almost. Did shut the hatchback door of a car on, on to me. Um, it was literally one inch from your head. I should actually approach Marcus Bonna to be like a spokeswoman. Can I tell you like, about the time my Marcus friend... Marcus Bonna case has saved my life. <laughs> I'm living proof that you could get dropped from a 17-story building and still live if you were wearing a Marcus Bonna case. Honestly, though, like <laughs> the force that I closed that door with, I would have killed you. It... Thanks, Marcus Bonna. <laughs> I live to tell about it. But the case is smaller. And mm-hmm. so like a standard bassoon case is a lot longer and will like, you know, take up more space. And some of the overhead bins are not big, like on these little get to college campus, smaller flights. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Puddle jumpers. Yes. To me, the most important thing is getting on the plane early mm-hmm. so that you have access to overhead bed space. Like the worst mm-hmm. case scenario is you're in boarding group five mm-hmm. and you don't know if you're going to have space for yep. your bassoon. So, uh, where I live, I'm very near United hub. I can pretty much assume that anywhere from Pullman is going to go through Denver mm-hmm. and that I'm flying United the most. So I joined United like whatever it's frequent called. flyers. Yeah. yeah. Every airline has their own things. Um, And because I'm a United member, I'm always in boarding group two. I get to board early. Mm -hmm. I get a free checked bag. Mm -hmm. Um, But that boarding group always knowing that I will get on because boarding group one is always like first class or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm the first in the main coach to Mm -hmm. get on the plane. And then I never have to worry about there being overhead space. Do you just put your bassoon in and then close the overhead compartment? No, no, no. I put it somewhere where I can see it in my Mm -hmm, eyesight. mm -hmm. Um, But for me, like the only stressful thing about traveling with the bassoon is, is there going to be room for it? Is someone going to give me grief? And if you're first on the plane, everyone pretty much understands first come first serve. Mm -hmm. So if I could give, as we're all getting back into flying, maybe Mm -hmm. some piece of advice, it's like, for me, it it meant doing a credit card, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And just because I hold that credit card, I can get on the plane early and Brilliant. I have knock on wood. I've never had an issue flying with my bassoon and getting it into the overhead bin when I need it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a nice stress-free way to be. Yeah. For me, I try to avoid the rolly bag, uh, carry on mm-hmm. because they try to tell you to check something, mm-hmm. you know, like if I have my oboe backpack and then another shoulder bag, they'll, ask fewer questions when I'm getting on these tiny planes yeah. and they won't hand me one of those like the green. Yes. I don't want one of those. Yeah. Don't talk to me about the green ticket. Talk to Mr. Businessman who flies Mm -hmm. 800 times a week. Yeah. That person can check their rolly bag. Yeah. So like if I have to Solomon's choice between my oboe bag and my, it just doesn't happen when you have like a shoulder bag. Okay, so for the people who are keeping track, oboe ranks above rolly bag, but below snacks. Correct. (laughs) 
consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Jung Choi, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of North Texas. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Hello. <laughs> um, can we get to know you a little bit better by hearing how and when you started to play the oboe? Sure. I started playing the oboe when I was 11. I was going over... I think 11, 12, somewhere in that range. It's um, so my older sister actually started playing the oboe before me. She just, my mom, my mom's crazy. My mom wanted (laughs) to join the orchestra. It's not my sister. My mom wanted her to join the orchestra and then the orchestra needed an oboist. So the orchestra director made her oboe play her play the oboe and she didn't want to do it after like doing it for like six to seven months. She, she wasn't interested and she didn't want to do it. But then by that time, my mom being herself, she already bought like a a brand new oboe and all the (laughs) YouTube books, like all the solos that she could think of. Like we had stacks of books and everything. So my sister quit and it was just lying there for a while. And I think when I was like, when I grew big enough, old enough to like take on a musical instrument my mom was like would you like to play the oboe because it was just there and I said no but she still tricked me into it and (laughs) here I am mom style mom style she tricked you into it she did she totally lied to me because my first oboe teacher um was like was a lady I love her like around my mom's age so she totally told me that she was visiting a friend So like I went and there was a little girl. So I started playing with her. And then the lady, my teacher, like, she's like, Jung, would you want, like, do you want to come over? And then I went and it was her oboe studio and she gave me a read and she was like, oh, can you play this? And I was a good girl. So I did. And that's how I started (laughs) playing the oboe. That is so sneaky. I know. (laughs) I'm a victim. Just kidding. <laughs> An oboe conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so you went from being the victim of an oboe conspiracy to being a professional musician and oboist. So how did that happen? Okay, so I just kept playing the oboe because um, I think it's mainly my mom wanted me to do it. I, and I really didn't have any strong feelings against it. She, well, she Was she like, I bought this thing, somebody's going to play it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to waste it. It's like all, it was a very... I guess it was eco-friendly because it didn't go to waste. <laughs> Save the world. Reduce your carbon footprint. Play the oboe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and all the printed music, I used it. I still have it. <laughs> I love that so much. And then I guess, I guess I wasn't bad at it. So I made into like a special, like a music school in Korea um, since, since seventh grade. So I went there and I went to an arts high school and then I went to college. And after undergrad, I actually quit for two years because that's when I, yeah, I, I started doubting. Is this like I didn't hate the oboe or anything, but I wasn't sure if it was something that I wanted to do. Um, so I did quit for two years and I, yeah, I picked it back up. Would you tell us more about that? Why, why did you end up picking it back up? Um. So I didn't, like, I said goodbye to everyone. And yeah, farewell music world, like I am, like, done. And then I started, I don't know, like, I wasn't bad in academics either. So I started studying some other things, but then it wasn't that interesting. So like, I think it took me two years to really realize that I, like, I actually enjoyed being in the Mm. field of music. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I decided to go, um, go get a graduate degree. So that's, that's actually when I really decided that I wanted to be a novelist. Can we hear about how, with your new mindset of this is what I want to do, um, can you talk us through um, graduate school and embarking on your professional journey? Sure. Um, I think it was, for me, it was almost helpful um, because I had some issues with my right arm. I still do, but it's not as severe. But when I was playing very competitively when I was young, it was it was a chronic issue. It was painful, but not playing the oboe for two years, it, that problem kind of went away. It's not so bad anymore. And then, hmm. you know, like because I grew up in that conservatory system, like I had friends like who kept on going. And after those two years, I felt like I was behind. Um, so it was a real motivator for me so I like as soon as I started I think it was like the October or November of 2005 I decided to go on and go get a graduate degree and like I looked into it and all the deadlines were December 1st so I had to like get my TOEFLs and everything done quickly so I just like forced myself to do everything Um, I auditioned I got in and then I think starting that summer I literally applied to all the music festivals. Like I like aligned the dates and I just applied to everything that I could get in. And I think I did like three music festivals every summer for two to three years. Wow. And I entered all the competitions because I felt like I needed to do it. And that's something that I, like that my friends had that I didn't. Um, Yeah. So I was able to like crunch in a lot in that two years of doing, getting my master's. So I think it was a good thing for me and it worked out. Yeah. Tell us how, um, 
how you got to where you are today. It seems like it may have been a little bit of a winding journey. Yeah. I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> sure. So I did my master's like that. And then I went back to Korea, got a job and played with the Korean symphony for eight seasons, got married, had kids, um, and also started teaching at my alma mater. Um, and then that's when I really realized that I actually enjoyed teaching. It was so rewarding and fulfilling that um, for all those years, I was learned, like I was in music as a young musician. I always wanted to play in big orchestra. And I, I always loved teaching, though. So I always imagined myself being more of a performer, like performing most of the time and teaching part time. But then for the first time in my life, I actually wanted to shift balance. Um, so I decided to learn more how to be a good teacher from my teacher. So I went back, I came back to the States to get a DMA. Um, and I did. And after that, I started teaching full time at Missouri State um, for two years um, in Springfield, Missouri. I loved it. And then now I'm here in Denton at UNT. So I was physically everywhere, yeah. <laughs> like not just, yeah, I was literally spiritually and physically. Yeah. I would actually love to hear a little bit more than that. Cause yeah, you mentioned TOEFL and I went, wait, did she go across the world? And uh, yeah, it sounds like you did just kind <laughs> of. Um, so, you know, a lot of times when we, talk to people who did international study, we like to hear about that experience and maybe what you would tell a listener who's considering international study about that um, experience, not only educationally, but personally and culturally. Can we hear about what that was like for you? TOEFL. I honestly think it's another hurdle to jump through. It's not a big deal. I think like the word TOEFL scares a lot of international students. Um, but it's really not that big of a deal. You just have to prepare for it and just take it. And I do know that there are some schools that waive the requirements to ease the process for the international students, but I highly recommend all of them to just do it because it's really different because uh, TOEFL, like studying for TOEFL prepares you to for your success in the States, because like, you know, like when you think of music lessons, it's all, you know, we use all different kinds of languages, Italian, I don't know, French, German, and you might not think that English is not that important, but it is actually, you can get so much more out of a, a, of a single lesson if you can actually speak the language. So I think it's important. And I think if you are planning on studying studying in United States, you should start preparing for the TOEFL very early on in your um early on in the process instead of just it's I don't think it's something that you can just do it in a month or two. So for the students who's aspiring to study in the US in the US, I would recommend to start early then later. What about beyond TOEFL, kind of the experience of doing it um the, the culture shock or um, our pedagogical styles different? Is the structure different? Or um, how was that transition for you? Um, it's actually a funny story. There's like this 
among us, I don't know about other countries, but in Koreans, we say, because American teachers are so positive, you know, it's always like beautiful, like, you know, and then they would say something later. And I think you have to like, actually, that's what I mean by like, you really have to learn the language because you have to like read between the sentences and everything. Mm -hmm. So like the Korean students would say, oh, just don't believe them. They'll just say that you sound good no matter what. And like, you might not end up getting it anyway. Um, So that's a culture shock, but like, that wasn't a big deal for me. For me was um, in Korea, I was, I was taught to speak less and do more, Mm. but not that here, like it's all about speech, but I think here you do have to speak up for, for some things or else people might think that you're not interested. Mm -hmm. For example, that's a good point. uh, Yeah. For example, for me too, like, I think this is something I still work on as a teacher because like I would, um, I would get it. I would be asked for a recommendation of a student, like for a gig or anything. But then my tendency is to be modest. Like even if I had a glowing star, I wouldn't say um, Galit is a star. Like she is the future generation. Like she is it. I wouldn't say that. Even if I said, I even if I think so, I wouldn't say that. Like my teachers would never say that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, yeah, you, I think you just have to speak out. And it that was one thing that was hard for me because um, when I was playing a concerto with uh, Eastman Philharmonia, actually I played it um, right after I got into Eastman. So it was like very early September. I just moved to the States. And um, I like in my first rehearsal, like I, I they sounded amazing. I loved it. I loved the experience. I was so grateful that they gave me a chance and everything. Um, but then later on, one of my Korean friends who studied there for a while told me that everyone, everyone thought I was unhappy with the orchestra. And, you know, like, but that wasn't true. It's because like, right after I, right after my first rehearsal, like I was being very polite. I just did my thing. And then I said, thank you. And I excused myself out and I didn't say, wow, you sound great. Or like, thank you so much for the opportunity. I didn't say those things. And they thought I was unhappy, which wasn't true. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that's something that was hard for me to because in Korea, I would never dare ever say like you, like you're amazing to a teacher, like right in front of a, like their face after a rehearsal, like I would say, oh, you're amazing. And they would be like, how dare you judge me? Like you're not in a position to tell me. Oh. Like some teachers would, I would just like show it with my gesture. I would say I would bow and I would say, thank you so much. But I wouldn't, I don't know. I wouldn't give comments about their whatever orchestra or group or anything. Right. Because who am I? Yeah, to, exactly. As yeah, a student, I, like, like as a professional now I would, but as a student, I wouldn't, right. I would be just grateful that I have a, I have the opportunity. So that was hard for me. Um, yeah. And I think it's hard for most students that are from my culture because mm-hmm. we're not brought up that way. And it's, it's uncomfortable, like at the beginning to do those things that you're not used to. Oh, that's so fascinating. What about the playing? Is the playing style very different? It is because uh, Korea, it's very European centered. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is the exact word I actually heard when I was auditioning for grad schools. Like one teacher told me that you sound great, but you can't play like that in this country. (laughs) 
<laughs> Isn't that? Yeah. No, like no reservations, no hard feelings. Um, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Really, really, really. I, I think, I think she really meant it well. And I think she really wanted to help me. Um, yeah. So it was really different, but I didn't really change change. So <laughs> I guess I, I felt like it was different, but I guess it's not. Did your read making style have to change? Yes, because like my reads were long scraped. I, I played both. With oh. Yeah. So my reads were long scraped, but still like I used European gouging, gouged cane. So my sides were much thinner. Mm. So I had more of a, like a, not bite, but like a European embouchure that's more straight out in this. And then I gradually um, switched over to, uh, an American gouged cane and then more standard Ooh. here. Yeah. Okay. Can we, can we get in the nerd weeds for a second? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Sure. Okay. When you were playing on more European style mm-hmm. reads mm-hmm. and you're playing with a European embouchure and I'm sure the air was different because mm-hmm. everything else was different. Mm-hmm. Was your vibrato production different? No, no, no. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. The vibrato production was the same. Yeah. Well, the concept of vibrato is different. That's something that I had to change because what I was taught, if this is a pitch, I I was taught to vibrate up and down. Uh Uh-huh. But here I was taught to only vibrate upwards. Uh Uh Uh-huh. So that's the only, but I think like the, the system, I think it's similar. Okay. Thank you for answering my question. I've been curious about that for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) When I did the the more like up and down vibration, they thought my tone was wobbly and some thought I was out of tune. Mm. And I still like when I listen to European players recording, that doesn't really bother me because I grew up in it. But then Mm I would listen to it. I would talk about it with some some of my American oboist friends and I learned that they actually find that out too. So when you're assessing your students, Mm -hmm. how do you approach that topic? Because the the longer we do this, the more I'm understanding that there is no right way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are lots of wrong ways. But there's no right way. So if somebody mm-hmm. comes in and is a little bit out in left field or right field or whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you address that? Given your experience in so many different situations and cultures and um, sound concepts, that's a very good question because I was very confused too. As a student, I was yeah. really confused as well, and I for the longest time when I was changing concepts, I wasn't really sure if I was actually listening, like going after the right stuff. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to change my vibrato because, but then my teacher would keep saying that I'm wobbling, but then I couldn't hear it. Now I can. Um, So I, it really depends on the student. I ask them what they want. Um, So if they say I want to play, like I want to take orchestral auditions I want to take a shot like that's what I want to do then I explain that um no matter what I think or what you think orchestras like they require a very specific player like they are looking for a very specific tone style of playing and everything 
not that they're not individualistic they are but then they're still like right. a very specific things that they look for and I make them do that and then if they say like I'm not really interested in orchestra I want to do this I want to do my music then I'll help them towards that side so it really depends on what they want yeah mm-hmm. you have had a variety of experiences musically. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about your experiences in competitions. You mentioned before that you, um, after your break, kind of intentionally uh, did some competitions and you've had students who have been very successful in international competition. Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the value of competitions and kind of what you gained through those experiences. If someone's on the fence going, oh, should I, should I do July Fox? I remember there were several years I'd like buy the rep and then I'd, I'd be like, ah, I don't know I should really, <laughs> what did you gain through those experiences and what have your students gained? That's a very good question because like I grew up again, I grew up in a culture that like doing competitions is a norm. So I really didn't think twice about doing it or not doing it. But I do feel like I gained much experience because like my first, uh, when I was, my first international competition was Prague, I think. Mm. And that didn't go so well because um, I was the only one that's preparing for it in my studio. And I didn't know what to expect. Not that I was underprepared, but I really didn't know what to expect. And then I went there and I heard, other players playing and then I was like it was an eye-opener for me I was like oh so that's what they are looking for and that's what they want me to sound like so from then on um yeah so from then on I knew what like I had a clearer direction of what good oboe playing is I think and then I I was able to it just went better from there so because I, I like I had a direction so I think that's good like you I don't like with the internet everything and nowadays I don't think you even have to enter if you don't want to I think I encourage my students to listen to Jilei Fox and the Geneve that just happened so that they can actually like have an idea of what they should aspire for and what an oboe can do not just play pretty music I love playing pretty music but it's not just all about playing pretty music there's actually other things mm-hmm. Um, And then it makes me focused to like really prepare for like one specific thing. It's just, I think it's just like taking orchestral auditions. It's the same thing for me. What are your musical goals in competitions? What, what did you, in your experience, did you find that they, what did they want you to sound like? I think they want, they were actually looking for someone with ideas not just like original ideas. Oh, got it. Even if you play the same old, same old pulling sonata, it can't be something like that your teacher taught you to like do a nuance here and there. It's like you had to have your own story, your own voice, your own ideas and your own imagination. And also I felt like they were looking for someone that had um, complete control over the instrument. So if I wanted to play soft here, they could. I wanted to play loud there like as loud as it can, like, I don't know, like, that's, that's still what I strive for. I want, that's what I tell my students. I want perfect control over my oboe and my read. I want to sound sad if I want to sound sad, if I want, I want to sound happy when I want to do it. So I think that's, 
that's what competitions are for. And like, as an artist, that's what I aspire to do even now. Like that's yeah. why I practice and that's being why. extremely clear about your musical intention and your mm-hmm. technical ability, just and being then, extremely clear about it. Yes. And yeah. delivery. Yeah. And I think that's like in order to win orchestral auditions too, I think it's like, it's a matter of like, can you play soft if when you want to play soft or can you play softer if the conductor wants you to play softer and I think it's all about gaining that extreme exquisite control over mm. your instrument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. You also have done music for movies. You've played on TV. You've mm-hmm. recorded K-pop songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, can we hear about some of those experiences? Were you touring with BTS? Sure. <laughs> I really would like to tour with BTS anyway. Um <laughs> So I I actually joked about it. So during summer, I'm just going to camp out in front of their office, mm-hmm. and, you know, to see what I can. I'm do. sure you wouldn't be the only one. You'd yeah. have to be a company. <laughs> well, that's where my friends comes into place. I think being a music, being in this industry, it's all about collegiality. So it's also about, I, I think some students, especially the the super competitive ones out there they just like practice in their practice rooms and then they just think that like I don't know like yeah but then I think it's all about collegiality so um actually my friends introduced me to those cool producers because they were looking for an oboist and then my friend was like oh like I know an oboist and that's how I got into it and then they were like she's a classical musician but I'm sure she can play this because it's not that hard to yeah so I did and then that just like and I think I did a good job and then that just uh yeah it just led to another another and I kept doing it and then when I got when I finally got a full-time orchestra job um, I like I just couldn't do it for my like because it was just too much playing and I couldn't make it fit in my schedule but yeah I think that's how it works like so your friends your music friends that's what's important so be nice to them don't be mean to them be nice to them so that they can put you in touch with some k-pop producers exactly <laughs> what songs um, can we hear you play the yeah album? where are your what are your credits well, they're not really important. Like none of the movies that I actually recorded went great. But, <laughs> <laughs> but then one frustrating thing is one, like one of the songs did go pretty popular because he's an older singer and he's not those idols that you might know, but he's one, he was like definitely one of the judges in most like Korean pop, like audition programs. So he has a song called Amateur that I recorded. So you can actually hear my oboe in Suncholi's Amateur. But then I was so not offended, but I was sad because in the music video, they actually hired someone else to like do the fingers. It's not me. It's <laughs> 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 actually me. So I was like, oh, did I look that bad? Like they can't use me in a music video. Okay. And then um, this is really hard to find. Uh, the TV show I did was... Uh, like like a poet reciting like there's a poet reciting right next to me and I had to play whatever music that went with the poem Mm -hmm. well I I think I played some Schumann Robert Schumann I don't know I don't remember it was the Filmstücke or whatnot but then they 
the producer thought I was being too loud, that I was overpowering the poet. So they wanted me to play softer and softer. And I just could not play any softer because I was right next to the person reciting. And then they, they're like, no, it's just like, it, it sticks out too much. It sticks out too much. Is it oboe? Like we can't do it. So I actually ended up playing like a half step lower. I just pulled out my reed and I just like loosened my embouchure and I made the pitch flatter and they liked it. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's like the clarity of the oboe that they didn't like. So I oh. kind of made it like, and they liked you it. made it a Baroque oboe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> You went to 415 and you made the belt <laughs> four bigger. <laughs> yeah, so that's what happened. So I'm not really proud of that recording. And I'm so glad that nobody can find it. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just shows your collegiality. Exactly. I just like, I'm a oboist. Like, if you pay me, I'll do whatever what you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of collegiality. I'd love to hear about your experience in the interview process for the job at UNT. It's such a big job and it's a great job and you seem like the perfect person for it. And I know there are a lot of listeners out there who are on the higher ed job seeking Mm -hmm. path, pounding the pavement. And so I'm sure everyone would love to hear um, your advice and maybe your experience on the day. I think if you're in the in the very early process of start like getting into like start trying to break into the higher ed scene, I think it's better if you can you, if you have the ability to cast a wider net. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like a lot of schools now look for not only oboe teachers, but who could actually teach oboe and something else, oboe mm-hmm. and something else. Um, so I think that's important to cast a wider net. And that's what I strive to do because when I was doing my DMA, I felt like the academic research part was what I was lacking. Cause I think I had enough performing career going on, but I didn't feel like I was, I could prove myself to the committee that I could actually teach DMA students also. Um, so that's what I worked on as a DMA student. I, yeah. So I, worked, I published stuff and I collaborated with other music education teachers out there to really work on my weakness and I think that's something that you can do Um, but at the end of the day I think that can help you like advance through the first and second rounds but I think in the final rounds they're actually they're looking for a very specific person I'm sure you all feel like that way too they it's not they're not looking for the best performer the best teacher out there they are but they're also looking for the person, like the person that they want. Mm-hmm. That part, I don't think you have control over it because mm-hmm. you can't really fake your way doing that. So I would say just be yourself. Just um, be a specialist in a thing that you that interests you, that you can do well. And if you can kind of balance those two, I think you will be successful because that's, that's what I advice. did. Because I think a lot of uh, DMA students have different balance in their resume. Because like some are like really excels in grant writings or researching. Like some they they do miracle works that I can't even imagine. Like I don't even know how they do it. But then I do know there are some people who 
have more performance oriented career. Um, so I think, yeah, just like filling up the gaps, like the weak work on your weaknesses, but still like focus on your strength. And that's, mm-hmm. I think how you can yeah, succeed in this field. Yeah. What read making advice do you have for our listeners? It's a double read podcast. So we got to ask about reads. Talk to us about your kind of um, routine, you know, how you fit that into a busy life with professional level expectations and just, yeah, any specific advice or tips or tricks that you think our listeners would like to hear. Okay. So my advice on read making is just make them stop worrying about it and just make them. <laughs> sharpen your knife and just make them like why quantity, not quality <laughs> <laughs> but then like once what let's worry about quality later like you don't even have quantity like, why are you worrying about the quality <laughs> yes because i think sometimes it really depends on a piece of cane that you end up scraping right and then you just have to keep scraping until you get that right piece of cane and I think like right now because I I have I can I know how to choose cane at the very early like at the very early stage so I won't have to spend too much time on scraping but I think when you're learning as a student um, you also have like you you learn how to choose cane by scraping on bad cane and you <laughs> learn how not to do it anymore. And so that's, I'm like, my students, they made, they make five reads a week and they're frustrated that none of them works. I'm not like, make more then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's good advice. Yeah. You just do it. I think the mental, for, for, okay. Career, like I'm not in a position to give a career advice because I'm in a still at a very early age, but my idea on approach on everything is just do it. Like just keep doing it because like, if you have a clear direction and if you just keep doing it, you will get somewhere. But if you don't do anything and if you just keep worrying about like the industry and, and COVID and everything, like nothing's going to happen, but yeah, do it. Do it and trust that you're going to learn enough while you're doing it in order to do it successfully. Yeah, I think like for me, I don't know about all the great oboists out there. Um, For me, I feel like I just, just, I'm still doing what I want to do by just doing it. And then there were a lot of failures along the way. I can't say like, I, like it was just a, a golden path that I had, like I walked, like everything that I touched was a success. It wasn't like I had so many, so much failures and very embarrassing moments, but I learned from it and I just kept, kept doing it. And it led me somewhere. Are we even oboists if we don't just like fall flat on our faces every once yeah. in a while? <laughs> exactly. And then I think you, at some point you have to grow that thick skin to like, okay, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't like me. Well, that's okay. Like I'll just I, I like me and my mom likes me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, my mom. <laughs> you played the oboe for like <laughs> I like me. I like me for sure. <laughs> I like me and Jackie likes me. That's all I need. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> I like me and I have my ice cream. Like I'm good. <laughs> 
This isn't our normal um, standard order of questions, but since you brought up embarrassing stories, are there any that you would be feel free to share with us of anything funny or embarrassing that has happened to you on stage? There's lots. Like there was a competition when I entered in high school. Like back then I was really full of myself. You don't have, you have no idea. <laughs> I, I thought I was the greatest thing ever. And then I, I, I did really well in the first and second rounds. Like the, all the judges were like praising after me. And then it was the final round. It was like, it was open to public. And then I was playing like one of the pieces that I played was the Simpson Sonata. And then the third mo- movement, you know how it goes up to the high F sharp. And then like, I don't know what happened, but my ambushers just popped. So it was just like, <laughs> so loud everywhere. It was embarrassing. And then there was another time, I don't know if it was a jury or, or an audition or what, like I was playing in front of people. I played the first movement of Mozart with a piano and then second movement, like I spaced out. I totally like... Yeah, I spaced out. I don't even know what happened. I spaced out and all of a sudden, like I just felt something wasn't going quite right. And then I looked around and everybody was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, and then I just started playing. And then there's so many. I don't know. I can't even remember. <laughs> Wait, you were daydreaming and you just kind of. I don't, I wasn't even daydreaming. I don't know. <laughs> You just came back and everyone was staring at you. Yeah. Oh, and then this one time I nailed a really big gig. I wanted to do so well. And I, I had this big English horn solo. I was still a student and it was it went so well. Like even the concert master came up to me and complimented me. And then I wanted to do so well. And then, you know, like in the concert, I had to hold like one note, like all the time, straight through nobody else playing. I was the transition and I don't even know which piece it was. And then, you know, when that happens, like a drop of saliva, you're <laughs> crawling back. I could feel it. But then I was holding that note. There was nothing I could do. Like I was, I couldn't move. I could feel it dripping in. And, it, you know, it touched the soft palate and it went like, uh, and then I, <laughs> what can you do? That has happened to me so many times. Really? Like, isn't that so nerve-wracking? I'm like, it's terrible. It. It's almost slow-mo. It's like, <gasps> it's going to yeah. happen. It's going to happen. Something's going to happen. I know yeah. it's going to be bad. <laughs> it's like, something's going to happen. And I apologize in advance. Like, there's nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like those videos of the trombone sneezing while they're playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What can you do? What can you do? You know what? My friend, this is a really funny one. My friend had the soft palate issue. You know how air still start, but then she was, I, I was a little younger than her in Korea. Her, she was a senior in high school. And you know how like university entrance thing is super competitive there. And her mom being her mom, she was another one of those moms. Her mom actually stuffed cotton balls into her nostril so that she could compete <laughs> and nobody knew she had like cotton balls up to here up to her nose and then she was playing I don't even know which place she was playing and then it was the final round and it was open to public and something <laughs> popped out of her nose <laughs> 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 just, oh, 
funny. We all thought it was something else. Like it was her like roast something. And then it was actually a cotton ball. <laughs> Just went flying across the state. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've never had a guest share other people's embarrassing moments, but I'm here for it. <laughs> You know, like, girl, did a piece of your brain just come out of you? <laughs> wow, that's a lot of back pressure. <laughs> I know. I was oh, and I had one time I was an undergrad. Like, you know, we were exchanging favors. I was playing for my pianist um recital, degree recital, and she played for mine. I was playing the dude to you. And in the third movement, the the music stand just collapsed. Like my music stand, I don't even know how that happened. It just collapsed and my music flew all the way over there. And then I just started walking. (laughs) You know, all those stories. But I want to make clear that even though I am like, things happen, whatever, and I just laugh about it. I do laugh about it after it happens, but I do practice and practice it, and I do try my best to make sure that none of those things happen ever again. Um, so my approach is, like, I am dead serious when I practice, but then after the performance, there's nothing I can do if it already happened. I love that so much. Yeah. Along those lines, let's balance things out a little bit here and um, have you tell us about some performances that were really special to you? Like, can you think back on your career and recall a memory of like a favorite performance that's special? I think it was the first time that I competed in Chile. That's when I really focused. That's that's that was after the Czech Republic. And that's when I like that's when I had that moment of epiphany that oh so so this is what I need to do and I really focused on it and that's the first time when I felt like I could actually control the oboe how I would want it to sound like and then ever since I think it it, that was the time that I really changed as an as an as a musician than as just a student learning oboe I think Mm. Swinging back a little <laughs> bit, um, I would love to hear more about your um, teaching philosophy. I don't mean for this to be a job interview, <laughs> maybe <laughs> some things that you find are important for young people to keep in mind as they're learning. What are some things that um, when they graduate from your studio they'll Mm -hmm. remember I want them to love what they do so even after they graduate because um surviving in this field is hard things might not happen in in timely manner like or things might not happen quickly enough as they would like it to be but for me um I think what kept me going is that um I really um, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> oh, I really love my friends and my teachers and everyone that I met in this, like, along my journey as a student. And um, still, like, I listen to um, all the great oboe players out there, and I want to sound like them. And that's like, I don't know, like my friends and my teachers and all the good memories that I had. And, and I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. So I want my students to feel valued 
And I really know that I care and I really want them to succeed because I'm not crying that I'm, that I'm a great teacher because um, that's what my teachers gave me. And I want to pass that on uh, because I, I really do believe that's the only thing that um, unless you're a genius that, um, that you can just get whatever you want, like right there. Like, um, because I know that that's the only thing your friends and your teachers like the sense of community and family is what will keep what will keep you what keeps you going. That's the most important thing that I want my students to get out from my teaching after they graduate. Jung, this was so fantastic. Oh, thank you. I absolutely loved getting to know you. And I'm so, so grateful that you chose to spend time with us on Double Read Dish. Thank you so much. Thank you for Having me, it was fun. It didn't really even feel like an interview. Oh, good. Thank you for joining us for that interview. What a fun time we had. And uh, please follow on social media uh, check us out there, rate and review, blah, blah. Next on the podcast is Marissa Oligario, assistant professor of bassoon at the University of Arizona. Jackie, end this nerd parade in person. Go make reads in person. In person. <laughs> 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 <laughs>